0: Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. Good morning, Grace Point Church, and thank you for being here. If you'd please stand for the reading of God's Word. If you'd like to follow along with the reading this morning and need a Bible, they can be found in the seatbacks in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, please take this one home. Or if you know somebody who needs a Bible, please take this one and give it to them. For we would love for you to have God's Word in your hands throughout the week. Today's scripture will be taken from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. And that can be found on page 1012. Please follow along with me as I read. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Please pray with me. Jesus, thank you for this day, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this church, Jesus. I pray that you would be with Pastor Jason as he brings the message today, God. And uh, if you would just bless us and uh, draw us closer to you. In
1: Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Amen. Hey, you guys can go ahead and grab a seat. Man, every one of us has blind spots. Everybody in this room. And, and when I say that, if you're like me, you start going like, oh, I know, I know what my blind spots are. I always think I know them, and I don't. And my wife does, and she tells them to me. And Yeah, yeah. So, and that's what I'm thrilled with the two of you that joined community group this last month for the first time, is if you hang in there, you are going to find out what your blind spots are. And here's, here's what that looks like. When I say a blind spot, the first thing you probably think of is some area of your life that you know needs to change, but you just haven't got around to it yet, like cleaning out the garage or picking up the leaves or uh, paying your, you know, filing your taxes before the day, and that's not what I mean. That is procrastination. That is you know what needs to happen, and you just haven't done it yet. You're waiting for the day that you have inspiration and get to operate off of that instead of uh, having to muster up discipline and go get that thing done. Whenever I say you have a blind spot, I'm saying there was a way you were raised. There's a view and a perspective that you have. There are ways that you treat people or think of people or things that you say that are not loving, that they don't uh, demonstrate the affections of Jesus or the behaviors of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus, and you have no idea that you and Jesus disagree with each other so far. You know what I mean? Like that day's coming, It'll, it'll come. And so whenever we uh, have this intersection with Jesus, wherever he says, hey, don't do this, and we're like, really, for real? Uh, so, so for example, uh, if maybe you have a quieter personality and, and Jesus would say, li- 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 live, I'm having trouble here. If he would say, live a peaceable and quiet life, and you would go, oh yeah, I do that. That might be coincidence. Like you might already be predisposed to live that way. But when Jesus says, hey, you're not married to that person, stop having sex with them. And you're like, oh, are you sure that's what it says? Yeah. What about the Greek? Have you read the Greek? Does it say that in the Greek? Whenever, yeah, some of y'all are like, dang it. And you're with your boyfriend and girlfriend today and you're like, really, right out of the bat, this is it, we tried a new church and you're okay, man. I'm only saying this because I love you, all right? I really, really do, I want good for you, and uh, for real. And you're like, I don't know, babe, let's try another church. But uh, hang in there with us, hang in there with us. But whenever Jesus says, hey, don't do that, and you really want to do that, and you go, I won't because Jesus said not to, that's obedience. That's what obedience looks like. It's what it feels like. It's, you won't always want to do the thing he calls you to do, and you won't always uh, not wanna do the thing he says don't do that, okay? And so sometimes what we are thinking of as obedience is really coincidence, but obedience is whenever... Uh, Jesus gets in our face, and it might be through his word. It might be through one of our friends in community group. It might be through your spouse. It might be through somebody you don't even respect on some sort of level, but what they're saying is truth, and truth is the most powerful thing in the universe, okay? And maybe you go to bed that night, and you disagree with it. You wake up the next morning, and you pour a cup of coffee, and your heart is softer, and you begin to agree. That's called confession. I agree that I'm wrong. And then repentance is whenever your life actually starts to change. So what I think is happening in James 2, 8 through 13, and really this piggybacks on the sermon that I preached last week, and I won't re-preach it, maybe. Uh, who knows? We'll see what happens. Uh, but it is online. You can go find it or podcast it and get caught up if you want to. If I get wound up, we'll get caught up anyway, but, uh, but I'm going to do my best not to do that. But, um, but last week we talked a lot about the sin of partiality. We talked about isms, and last week, really, what I talked about was Spotify-ism, and you can, go, you can go back and get caught up on that, but I think this was a blind spot for the Jewish New Testament church. I think that they are people who had deep roots in faith. I want you to know that they know their Bible. Like, like uh, um, I know, like, this, this may be funny to you, and maybe you're like, What? But um, like I know all the New Testament books of the Bible in order. Old Testament, I totally have to look in the beginning of my Bible and be like, okay, when they're like, hey, we turn to Kings, I'm like, I kind of know where that's at. When they say Habakkuk, I know right where that one is because it's the last one, right? But for real, like I, okay, I know the books of the Bible in the Old Testament, but I can't always remember their order. But I learned this song when I was a kid for the New Testament ones, so I remember those. But when I say these people that James is writing to know their Bible, like they have the first five books of the Bible memorized. Like, they could just recite it to you. They could tell you all of Genesis, all of Exodus, and so on. These people have deep roots at faith. Uh, They grew up with posters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses on their wall. Like, they're in, you know? And they even believe that Jesus was God when he raised from the dead. So they got deep roots back in Judaism, and now they have deep roots in Christianity. They know a lot, they're probably strong in a lot of things, and they probably don't realize that the way that they're treating people is mistreatment, that there's a way that they're using people rather than loving people Well, and so I just want to let the points out of the bag before I get into the text. I just want to say this, and the first point is this, and I think this is what James is digging into the Jewish Christians that he's writing to is, number one is Christian maturity is not information. Christian maturity is not information. So you are not a mature Christian because you know a lot of things about the Bible, and you know a lot of things about Jesus. It's helpful, and I'm glad that you do. And if you know it in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, that's, that's great. It's not a bad thing to know a lot of things about the Bible. But I don't want you to deceive yourself into thinking because you know what it says that you're actually living it out, okay? So Christian maturity is not information, and information would be knowing without doing. It would be the information without the application. And we, we do this all of the time, like, uh, we know that to lose weight, we need to eat less and move more. Like it's knowledge. Like we could coach somebody else, but doing it ourselves, yeah, we like, we like grease, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and in, in saving for retirement, we know that if we listen to Dave Ramsey enough and we put five hundred dollars a month and whatever it is, that we'll be uh, every day normal millionaires by the whatever. Like we know what to do, but we like new things or whatever, you know. We don't do what we know we're supposed to do. And the majority of what we're learning, I mean like the majority of our discipleship is information and it's a lot to go now and do. In fact, when Jesus would disciple his disciples, he would give them something to go do much more than he would give them an idea uh, to, to muse over, okay? And so Christian maturity is not information. It is not knowing without doing. Christian maturity is transformation, okay? Christian maturity is transformation. It's knowing and doing. Think about two pedals on a bicycle. One pedal of information, the other pedal of application. Information, application. Okay. So, like, hey, don't uh, you know? Don't hate people. Oh, how do I do that? Well, get some friends who love Jesus and let them kick you in the shin every time you hate someone. Okay, and you'll start to figure. Oh, okay, like, yeah, all right, all right. Love people. Well, love God. Love Jesus. Love people. Christian maturity is is information or it's transformation, it's information plus application. It's knowing that I should be generous, and then you look at my bank account, and it demonstrates generosity, okay? Maturity is whenever we are stepping out there in faith and trusting Jesus and obeying him. That's what Christian maturity looks like. So in other words, our lives should not be mostly um, defined by theory, Christian theory, it should mostly be defined by obedience, that we're doing what Jesus told us to do. And here's the other thing I wanna say about uh, maturity as a Christian being transformation. It's this, that Christian maturity is progress. It is not perfection. And I hope for some of you, you're like, oh, good, okay? Christian maturity is progress, not perfection. When I say we are transformed, what I don't mean is that now we are perfect and we never mess up anymore, okay? Uh, I think it was Martin Luther who said all of a Christian's life is that of repentance. What it means is the transformation is that we have moved from guilty to innocent by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In the throne room of heaven or the courtroom of heaven, uh, our verdict has been given and we've been declared innocent by the voice of God, by Jesus himself. So our innocence didn't come by we leveled up in humanity or we figured out the Bible code or whatever it was. No, he just made it so. He took our guilt on himself and he gave us his righteousness. But not only is there a legal verdict that's issued in our name, Holy Spirit lives within us and changes us from the inside out. And when he changes us, he gives us new desires, new affections. So for example, we still have the ability to throat punch someone who sins against us as a Christian. And people are like, well, that's not the Christian thing to do. I'm like, not unless they repent. If they repent you know, or confess that that was wrong, that's a Christian thing to do. But then for you to know that you should get low and love people well, forgive those who sin against you, and love people more than they would wound you, and you start to try to work from that muscle of faith. And so even just in the beginning, like if you're used to holding grudges when somebody lets you down, and, and so pro- progress rather than perfection looks like this. Maybe you're down on yourself and you're thinking, I'm still holding a grudge. I shouldn't be holding a grudge. This isn't right. This isn't okay. And then in your inner, your self-talk, your inner dialogue is saying, man, I, sh- I really should probably let that go. And I want you to compare that inner talk you have now with who you were five years ago. And what did you say five years ago? Five years ago, you probably thought, throat punched that sucker twice, you know? I'm gonna catch him again. But now there's, yeah, yeah progress, not perfection. But, but for real, you are transformed that you have a new capacity, that you can forgive those who you used to right off. And you can confess sin when you used to, you would act like there was no sin because your pride wouldn't let you get that low because you think that's too vulnerable. Someone has something against you until you realize sin is powerless over you because of what Jesus has done at the cross. So that being said, Christian maturity is transformation which is information plus application. Christian maturity is progress, not perfection. In other words, as you look back on your life a year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, are you growing and trusting in Jesus? Are you grow- And when I say that, not just growing and knowing things about the Bible, but are you growing in obeying Jesus and what he says? So on that foundation, I think this is where James is digging in on these churches and saying, y'all are doing great at a lot of things, but I want you to know that the sin of partiality is just as bad as sleeping with someone you ain't supposed to. It's just as bad as hating people and killing people, because that's where he's gonna go with this. So in James 2, 8, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. In other words, he's saying, look, if this is what you were doing, then I wouldn't be writing this part in the letter, okay? If you were killing it at this, then then I would just be saying, good job, you guys, way to go. And so I I don't think it's any uh, mistake or or, um, just happenstance that James writes the royal law. I think he's using kingly language, okay? I think he's doing this on purpose. And so in the Old Testament, there's like 613 laws. The people he's writing to, they know them. Uh, You are probably like me, you know the Ten Commandments ish, right? You know 10 commandments ish. You know a couple of them probably, okay? These guys know the 613 laws. And so um, Jesus oversimplifies the 613 laws within his earthly ministry and he says, love God and love people. That's the summary of the law. The the laws are to teach us how we relate to God and how we relate to one another. So if you're truly fulfilling the scriptures and the way you live your life, you will be loving people well. That's the gauge. Okay, like how are you with your affections for God? How are you with your affections for people? And so here's the thing is I I think when we think of love, we juxtapose it to hate. And when we think of hate, we think of uh, being mean to someone and pouring out wrath on someone, um, that sort of thing. Uh, Hate could certainly be that. But I think what James is saying is the juxtaposition would be the difference between serving someone and using someone, Okay. And what James is saying is you're being partial to some people, but in that partiality, you are disregarding one group of people and you're using the other group of people that you're showing partiality to because you're trying to get something from them rather than wanting something for them. And so the opposite of loving people well, like James described here, is using people harshly or taking from people or using people to love ourselves. I remember when um, I told Carrie that I loved her and uh, wanted her to marry me I meant it when I said it. I mean I was 17 years old we got married at 18 so you just think about all you knew about love whenever you were 17 I mean sometimes what I meant was I really lust you baby you know (laughs) or you know I or you make me feel really good about myself when you're around you know I like the way I feel when you hold my hand now I thought I knew what love was but you know Love shows up whenever you're worried about your kids and you're weeping together and you're praying for their souls, or you lose a parent and you can't sleep for three days and you're comforting one another. And the gospel of Jesus like some of y'all that have been married for decades, you could speak about what love is and you can point us back to what Jesus says when no greater man has, or love is no greater than someone who would lay down their life for some, you know, their friends, someone that they love. So love is not sentiment, love is sacrifice. Okay, And the opposite of sacrifice would be to use people, to love yourself. You you sacrifice them for your gratification. You can even be nice as you're doing it, okay? Because it's really about your motivations. It's not even so much about the behavior as it is what's going on in your heart. Uh, Tim Keller would say the three primary categories, he wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, it's pretty good, Uh, or it's actually really good. Look at me, Keller's okay, you know? He's okay. Um, it's really good, and he says that there are three categories in which we are prone to use people, and and we these three categories will these are our sin our, our favorite sins it's sex, money, and power. It's it's sex, money, uh, power or influence or I'll work through it and, and, and see if it helps. But this is how Jesus saves us and how He transforms us. So when it comes to money, Jesus saves us from using people to love money. You know, some of you, that's your blind spot is you use people to love money. You, do you build an organization? Do you use those who work under you to further your bottom line? Or uh, is the company good for these families that that are working there? Are they going home with full hearts and tired hands because the work is rewarding even though it's really hard? Like, Are you using people because you love money? Money. Are you taking advantage of relationships to to get discounts? Are you doing bad business because you don't wanna pay what it really costs to get something? So you start to call your friends hoping that they'll do something for you on the side. Are you using people to love money? Because Jesus saves us from using people to love money and he saves us too using money to love people. We just gave a report on a lot of people gathered together at Grace Point Church using money to love people. We wanna see those kids hear about Jesus and be saved. We wanna bless this city through this church. That's loving people and using money to do so. When it comes to sex, Jesus will save us from using people to love sex. I hope you know that you can do that. You can use somebody else's body. Uh, you can strip away their dignity as a human being and you can just use them to gratify yourself. And that's sin, that's, that's wrong. And the transformation we can experience from Jesus is that he'll save us from using people to love sex and using uh, save us, too, using sex as a way to love your spouse. Some of y'all were like, where's he going? Love your spouse. Love your spouse. Some people uh, can't have sex with 100% of the people they're tempted to have sex with. When you're married, you can't have sex with 99% of the people you're tempted to have sex with. So you shut that off, right? You make it, it's for you and your spouse, okay? That's what it's for, it's for marriage. And, and that's the danger is outside of marriage, uh, outside of covenant is contract. And contract says, so long as you bring this to the table, I'll bring this to the table. But if you ever don't meet up to par or you don't ever meet the standards or whatever, we're done and we're, we're busted up. But covenant says, no matter what, what's the Randy Travis song? Like Even when, if your hair falls out, your teeth fall out, I love you anyway. I think I ad-libbed there a little bit but you might get it, but that's covenant. That says I move towards you. That says that, that, that I, my vision for this marriage is to be buried beside you one day after hopefully, by God's will, a long, long life together of raising a lot of family and friends and all that sort of stuff. You with me? All right. P- uh, power. Jesus saves us from using people to build power, Okay. Uh, What does it look like to use people to build power? Have you ever just manipulated anybody? That's the wrong way to ask it. You'll never say yes. Do you have siblings? That's the way I would ask that. Did you ever get them to do your chores and you got out of chores or whatever it was? Like You told them that they were picked up on the side of the road one day or whatever. Like I had all kinds of little stories and angles for my brother's. Uh, and I would just turn that stuff on any time I needed for them to feel bad about themselves so I could feel good about me. It's terrible, it's it's terrible. But think about it, like have you ever just messed with someone's day? You know, like I've got a friend right now, I got a friend right now, a pastor buddy of mine, if I just looked at him and said, man, you don't look like you feel good, he'd be like, really, you think so? Like, yeah, man, you don't look good. He will cancel all his meetings, he'll go home, he'll be in bed, (laughs) let everybody pray for me, I think I'm sick. And we just, I can just convince him right now, and I won't even give you his name, but I think you all are like, I know who he's talking about. But that's, that's manipulation. And so Jesus saves us from using people to love that feeling of power. And, and I hope you know what I'm talking about. Have you ever just as a parent, you know, you, you've got rules and you're like, here's the golden rules. And dads say this stuff, all, at least back where I come from, like, what's the golden rule? Well, I'm the dad, I have the gold, I make the rules, Right. <laughs> Right? Yeah. Somebody like, yeah, I know. Yeah. But Jesus saves us from using people to build our power. All right. And he saves us to using power to build people. You know, all that authority that he's given us and all of that influence we have in relationships is for them. It's not so much for us. It's for us to use that to build other people. So the royal law Back to what I was, I started a thought and I didn't finish it. But the royal law, I think that that is specific language by James because the king, the royal king is who decrees the royal law. And the king is sovereign and he can do whatever he wants. And I think what James is showing them is remember the royal king, Jesus, he actually lives by his own law. How many of you have laws? They're like unwritten uh, uh, cultural values of your home uh, you have them, and you don't even live by them, right? Like, how many times you've been on a road trip, and they're like, dad has a candy bar. Like, well, <laughs> dad has the gold. I don't know what to tell you, you know? Like, how many, like, how, think about our rules. I'm seeing thumbs moving around, like, this is awesome. This is fun, but um, I'll pray for you after the service if you need it, But uh, but think about that. Like, we don't even live by our own rules. Like, there's all kinds of stuff. Like, Uh, I could coach people in so many things and, and for myself, I need a coach. You know what I'm saying? And so, but Jesus lives by his own law. He really does. He doesn't tell us to love people well and then secretly he hates people. No, he loves people well. And so Jesus is the only king. He's the only national leader or whatever you want to call that. He's the guy who uses money to love people. He's the guy who uses power to build other people. So he's the guy who follows his own laws and accomplishes righteousness. And the good news is that he gives that to us, but I'm going to get to that in a minute. So he's a royal king who's written a royal law who lives by his own law. And James is saying, um, I want you guys to know that you think you're loving people well, but you're not because in verse 9, uh, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors that 613 uh, things that that they all knew about okay verse 10 says for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all for he who said uh, do not commit adultery also said do not murder if you do not commit adultery but do murder you have been a transgressor of the law I think that uh, what James is doing is he's not trying to convince these people that they aren't saved He's assuming that the recipients of this letter are Christians. Now, I'm not making that same assumption to everyone I'm speaking to. I think in our culture, there's there's a lot more probability that someone would be here that's not yet a Christian, who's not yet transformed. You might have information, but you don't have transformation. And what James wants to point out is that, hey when's the last time you repented of something? Because I see a blind spot. All of a Christian's life should be that of repentance. And remember, your transformation is progress, not perfection. So as you grow in Christ, you should stumble across things in your attitudes and your affections and in your beliefs and in your behaviors that don't match up with what Jesus lived and what Jesus taught. And what James is showing them is your sin of partiality, which isn't ism. It's like, I don't like, uh, I don't like old people or I don't like little kids. Well, that's ageism, okay? Well, I don't like poor people. Well, that's classism. Last week, we talked about Spotifyism. you know, Joe Rogan versus Neil Young stuff. And I ain't gonna rehash it all out, but it's out, it's out on the internet if you need it real bad. But uh, for you to treat someone different than you would treat someone else as it pertains to treasuring or holding fast The Lord of glory, Jesus. So when it comes to gospel and mission and community, you know, like for example, I'm gonna be partial. If I coach a football team, my son's gonna be the quarterback. If you want your son to be quarterback, you coach a football team, right? That's not the partiality he's talking about, okay? Um, The partiality he would be talking about is if someone said, pastor, would you come pray for me? And I'm like, you're not a Cowboys fan, you know? And this is a hard day for me. You know? The best day about today is the seven-layer dip and the jalapeno poppers. I'm just going to tell you. (laughs) But if I were to say, "Well, I don't know. You're not. You're not in my gang," and whatever I want to call my gang, no. If you're a congregant in our congregation and you call on me for prayer, the Bible says, "Pastor, get after it." Right? I don't get to be partial. You know what I'm saying? Like we all get to pick our friends. That's not what he's saying. When it comes to sharing the gospel, if you only share the gospel with people that look like you play your games and do your thing, you're showing partiality when it comes to living on mission. If in your community group, all you guys, all you do is you have an affinity that's really bringing you together, then that's partiality, you know what I'm saying? Uh, don't, please don't get this twisted. Not, not everybody uh, is, how would I put this, compatible? <laughs> You know what I mean? It is not a sin to be irritated with someone. That's not wrong, that's not a sin. But it is a sin to say, I will not extend community to you or I will not extend mission to you. I will not help you treasure the gospel because you irritate me. Does that make sense? There's nothing wrong with picking a community group that fits you best. But if what's really happening is you're trying to be comfortable and those people never challenge you on your blind spots and it's easy and what you really talk about most is bow fishing or whatever, I'm just trying to make one up on the spot. That one wasn't in the notes. But that's probably partiality. Like at some level, like some of our community groups, those people vacation together and they're like godparents in everything and I just want you to know that is not the norm. For most people, they get in a community group and they're like, If it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't hang out with these people. It don't mean I don't like them at all or whatever. It's just like, one of us votes red, one of us votes blue. And we can't get on Facebook with each other because that goes bad, you know? But it's Jesus that brings us together. We are not uniform, but we are unified because Jesus and Holy Spirit has given us a love for each other that extends beyond our political affiliations or our hobbies or the age of our kids. You with me? Okay, so... What James wants them to see is, hey, y'all are showing partiality, and I gave you some definitions of how that happens, and it happens to us. I think we've been doing that as a culture, not not our church so much. I'm not trying to rip on y'all, but the American culture over the last several years is super, super all about partiality. You can't just like someone and not like this, not like that. Like You either got to be all in or all out. If there's a political candidate and you say what they said was dumb, well then, whoa, are you on the other? You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? I don't have to get into that. You get it. And what he's reminding them is this, that that sin breaks the law. Like there's no sin that's less than the other sins. And so what what they knew well was, and they remember well, is when Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and this echoes the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7, where Jesus would say, you've heard it said not to commit adultery. And people are like, yeah, I've never done that. And he says, well, I'm telling you, if you've ever lusted after someone in your heart, it's the same as committing adultery. And then you heard all these Homer Simpson, you know, and then he says, and you've heard it said, do not murder. And people are like, well, yeah, I surely have never done that. Like, I'm not a psychopath. And then Jesus says, but if you've ever hated someone in your heart, it's the same as murdering them. And everybody's like, my goodness, this is tough. And Jesus says, yes. Like, I want you to know that yes, your heart is flawed your heart is deceptive, your heart is wicked, you have the beauty of God, you're made in his image, you have his thumbprint on your life, you have human dignity, but you're also broken and flawed, and you have a sin nature, and you crave sin, and Jesus is the one who saves us from those desires, and he gives us new desires, and we crave righteousness, we crave obeying him, and so Jesus is reminding them, um, James is, reminding them and echoing the things that Jesus said. And for you to show partiality is using people. And really what you're doing is you're hating someone in your heart and you're loving yourself. You're not using a thing to love a person. You're using a person to love a thing. And if you're doing that, you're just as guilty as the adulterer and you're just as guilty as the murderer. And so he's trying to let that level the congregation. And so then he says in verse 12, so speak, and so act as those are who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Now that is a little different than how we've read some of that before, and I'm just gonna let it hang there. I'm not gonna try to, well, yeah, I guess I am. I I will explain that here in a second. But what James says is, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. So if you are merciless in your relationships, he's warning you to say, God will be merciless to you on the day of judgment. That's damning, okay? Like, I can look back and be like, oh, I've been merciless. And it, and it rips me. And then I think back to like, oh man, my sin of partiality is just as weighty as adultery or murder. Like, James ain't messing around with this. But he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, he, he puts them in the, oh, and then he's like, but, you know, mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is like whenever, uh, you know, I'll tell you it's, it ain't anything you can't repent of, okay? And so here's the, here's the thing is, what James is saying to them is if you can't see this, and you're blind to this thing, let me help you see it. And once you've seen it, if you can't do it, then maybe you can't do what you don't have. Does that make sense? You can't give what you don't have. And so, for example, pride and partiality go together. When our heart gets proud, we start to get partial. And last week, the way I described partiality is whenever our preferences become our prejudices. There is, and I don't mean our convictions. I mean our preferences, okay? And I hope you, I hope you get the nuance. There's, I don't have time to, get to preach the sermon again last week, but preferences uh, should not become prejudices, but they do when our heart is proud. And the way that pride and partiality go hand in hand, so do humility and hospitality, so if you find yourself very partial in the way you use your relationships, there's pride somewhere looming around in there, okay? If you find yourself very hospitable to people in your relationships, you're operating out of a sense of humility, okay? And so my question is just this. This is how I'm gonna land the plane. Who could use some more hospitality from you in your relationships? Is there a segment of society? Is there a group of people? Is there someone in your uh, you know, contacts on your your phone, or people on Facebook. Who who could you be more hospitable to? You tend to be more partial against or partial for. How could you extend more hospitality? And if you know the answer, but you can't do it, do you have the capacity to extend that hospitality? Okay. I don't mean weakening the, the law. Like James is being hardcore, like this is sin and it's wrong. I don't mean letting people think that they're okay when they're in the danger zone, but I just mean loving people well, you know? Not weaponizing truth, but using truth, to, soaked in love, to love people well. If you do not have the capacity to show that kind of hospitality, you can't give what you don't have. If you've not received mercy, you certainly can't extend it. So in other words, if Jesus is just useful to you, you will use people. But if Jesus is beautiful to you, you will show mercy to people. Here's what I mean by that. If Jesus is a means to an end, if you've realized, you know, Proverbs is pretty helpful. My business is doing better when I read the Proverbs and follow what Chick-fil-A does, you know? And man, there's stuff in here about marrying a good woman and being a good man, all there's stuff. There's principles in here to live by. Sure, sure. But the thing about it is Jesus is not merely our example. If Jesus is our example and we think we match up to Jesus, we're in a deception because he's not only our example. As our example, he's to show us, I live by those 613 laws. I'm the royal king who decreed the royal law and I lived by them. And there's no other human being who has ever lived by and lived up to that royal law. So that should be devastating to us that we deserve hell and judgment and wrath and justice and all of those things. And then Jesus tells us, hey, what you failed to do, I went and did in your place. I went to work for you when you couldn't get it done. I lived a life of righteousness. I obeyed all 613 of those laws. And when I went to the cross, I sacrificed myself for you. I appeased the wrath of God for you. God poured... Wrath out on me. In other words, oversimplify it. He went through hell for us on the cross. He raised from the dead on the third day to demonstrate power over the grave, power over death, that this is a historical movement and not predominantly a philosophical movement. In other words, we are truly transformed from the inside out. So some of you know exactly what I mean when you say, yeah, I can dig deep in there. I have the capacity to extend hospitality to people that I disagree with politically or I disagree with on on other levels of life, but I can still be hospitable toward them, okay? And some of you say, I don't even know what you're talking about. I can't do that. I read about it, I see Jesus doing it. He's my example, but he's not yet been my provider. I don't have those new capacities. I don't have those new desires. Well, the good news, by God's grace, we can repent of our rightness and be made righteous by Jesus, and you can do it right now. That's a lot of rights, isn't it? (laughs) You can do it right now. The Bible says that if we will believe in our heart that Jesus raised from the dead and confess with our lips that he's the Lord of our life. Those aren't magic beans and magic words. They come from faith. If you believe when I say Jesus lived a life that you are messing up right now and he got it right while well, you're getting it wrong. And at the cross, he took what's wrong with you and gave you what's right about him. And he raised from the dead. And he's alive, and he rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. And, he, and his presence is on this earth through people gathering together right now, reading words about him and reading words from him. This is the authority of our lives, the word of God, okay? And if, if something in you says, yes, I agree with it, my soul agrees with that, I believe this, I, I want to believe this, then from that disposition, from that affection, believe in your heart, that Jesus raised from the dead and confess with your lips that he's Lord and you will be saved. Yeah, yeah. Let's pray.